0: First Kings chapter eight is where we're going to be today. If you hit the Psalms, you've gone too far. Right after Samuel. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this wonderful day where we get to remember how you were brought low, how you willingly came and took on flesh to be like us, and and Lord, that you resonate with us. You know what it's like to be with us. So we thank you for that, God, and I I pray that you would um, draw out of the text this morning what it means that you would dwell among us and how we should respond to that. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that work in us today. You bring us understanding from the scripture. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was little, like any good American family, we would take road trips to visit other family. Unless you forget that I grew up in a pre-cell phone world as well, I'm here to remind you that traveling was not always just filled with entertainment. We had to take anything we could get. There were all six of us in the car and we had to share the one CD player attached by that cord into the tape player, which is, I still don't understand how that works. (laughs) So naturally, we would try to fill the time with word searches, crossword puzzles, or staring out the window for the license plate game. But one time, I remember being so hyped for the new entertainment that my parents got they bought a few travel-sized board games. Now, these were not electronic versions. They were miniature-sized versions of the regular game. And one in particular that I remember is Monopoly. And the fact that this game got made is just ridiculous. <laughs> it was, of course, a tiny board, but then imagine having all like the tiny money and the tiny property cards <laughs> and even tinier board game pieces And now imagine trying to play this in the backseat of a car or, or in the row of an airplane. And now imagine that it's kids under 10 who are supposed to be using this. Needless to say, pieces were quickly lost or broken. There was never a fulfilling game of Monopoly played. It was never as good as the full size. The travel size items, they're made from inferior materials, they're not made to last, they just don't give justice to the full size thing. The whole time you're playing a travel sized game, you are dreaming and thinking of how great it would be if we had a stable surface, words that were big enough to read, pieces that didn't need tweezers to use. <laughs> the travel size makes you long for the real thing. The end of your journey, where you can be at ease, where you can use your items in the proper way that they were intended. The nation of Israel, they had been traveling for a very long time. They lived in tents. Everything was temporary, transitory. It needed to be compact, movable, impermanent. And when they were in this place, God so graciously made his home among them. While they lived in tents, he would live in a tent moving with them, revealing his presence wherever they would go. When we get to today's passage in 1 Kings, it is at the height of establishment for Israel. There is wealth. There is triumph over enemies. There is expansion of land. The people no longer dwell in tents, but instead they've built houses. They are reaping the fruit of vineyards that were planted generations ago. Everything is in a permanent state. And yet... Their God still lives in a tent. King David realized this, and he wanted to honor God with a permanent dwelling, an everlasting house, a building more suited for his majesty. And God responds to him saying, you will not build me a house, but your son will build me a house. I'm going to do you one better. You want to build me a house, I'm going to build you into a house. Your family will forever be on the throne and I will establish your house for eternity. God's plans are bigger than man's plans. God's presence with his people is more than a building. Nevertheless, the Lord sees fit to fill this temple with his glory, to show how his promises are fulfilled from one degree of glory to the next. This building shows the establishment, the security, the permanence of God's people with God in their midst. And as we will see from Solomon's prayer of dedication today, God saw fit to fill the temple so that they may know his glory, so that they may know his mercy, and so that they may know his name. We're going to start here at the beginning of the chapter. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses, of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord into its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are here, they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So moving day had finally arrived. Solomon finished off the temple, but he waited to have the celebration until the seventh month. And this was likely to coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a feast where the nation would all go and live in tents, so that generation after generation, they would remember that their fathers lived in tents in the wilderness. And God took care of their every need, and he brought them to the land in which they dwell. This is the most appropriate time to inaugurate the temple. The fulfillment of this whole celebration is right here in your midst. Just as everyone would leave those temporary dwellings at the end of the feast, so the throne of God will exit the tent and move into a new house. Every aspect of the temple is bigger and better than the tabernacle. In size, it's exponentially larger. It's taller, wider, longer. Instead of woven into cloth, all of the details are carved into wood. And I will let you read the building details in 6 and 7 on your own time. But if you do, the detail that would jump out at you is gold. Everything, and I mean everything, is coated in gold. The very floor you walk on is covered in gold. All of this extravagant detail and great wealth put into this inner sanctuary that only a handful of people in all of history would ever have seen. These details are recorded here probably because it was something most people would never see, but it's important for our mind. And so I want to tell you about three aspects of the inside of the temple, and I want to to highlight as they pertain to important symbolism. The first thing is that the temple should remind us of a home. It's a house. It has rooms in it. It has furniture. There's a table filled with food. There's lampstands to give light. And just as in the tabernacle, the temple is to show that God has made his home in the midst of the homes of his people. He has moved into the neighborhood. Secondly, we have the imagery of the Garden of Eden. The temple doors, they faced east, which is the direction that Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. The priests would enter from the east, and they would pass by the cherubim that were at the doors. And if you remember, the garden had cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance so that people could not enter. But these cherubim were disarmed as though to invite you in. The details carved into the walls are palm trees from floor to ceiling, all around. The lampstand, they're designed to look like trees with almond blossoms. So entering into the temple is to re-enter Eden, where God originally made his dwelling with man. This plan is for all time, that he will be their God, and they will be his people, and he will make his dwelling among them. The third thing I want us to see is how the imagery speaks to the otherness of God. Carved into all the walls are cherubim, Winged angels of the heavenly court, invisible to the human eye, unless, of course, made visible in rare occurrences. And then, in the most holy of holies, are these gigantic 15-foot statues of cherubim overshadowing the place of the Ark of the Covenant. I've spent a lot of time in my sermon preparation just trying to picture all of this in my mind. And I invite you now to close your eyes and, and do that as well. Imagine standing in this room, a 30-foot cube. Largely, the place is dark. The only light is coming from these lampstands that line the walls. Flames flickering. The light of candles shining and reflecting off of every surface, creating this glimmering kind of glow. And as you look around, you see the light shining off of these creatures that are carved into the wall, These kind of impossible creatures, multiple sets of wings, several faces, that of an animal and a man. And as you look ahead, you see the poles of the Ark of the Covenant sticking out from the inner sanctuary beyond the veil. And because they stick out, I imagine that you could have a little bit of a peek past the veil to see the same cherubim now in life-size form, more than twice your size, a towering presence, yet hidden from view, the light just shining off of the gold appearance, overshadowing the place where God has set his glory. And this whole thought just fills me with such wonder. Who is this God? As Solomon says in verse 27 Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built? This is not like the temples of the nations around them. You don't find the God when you walk in, you only find the likeness of his servants. Instead, you are seemingly transported, transcending the space, pointing you bigger, outside, to the otherworldly place. Every aspect of the temple tells you that God cannot be contained by these walls, and he's outside the confines of our reality. And on moving day, the priests took God's throne the Ark of the Covenant, into the most holy place. And as they exited, a dark cloud filled the house of the Lord. And this cloud of glory was so overwhelming that the priests could not even continue ministering. This God, who is outside of our time and space, praised by otherworldly creatures and dwells in thick darkness, has also somehow drawn near His glory cannot be contained, but he has seen fit to fill the walls to the brim with his glorious presence. But what is the ark? And what's the significance of it coming into the temple? Well, in case your knowledge is mostly based in Indiana Jones, I'll I'll let you know that it is not merely a box of face-melting energy. This passage tells us that inside the ark is the tablets of the covenant given to Moses, the Ten Commandments. This ark is the throne of God inside of his temple. He is enthroned upon his word, his commands, his revealed will to his people. He has made it clear what it means to have him as God and to be his people. As I've stated, there's so much that points to God's transcendence, which is his otherworldliness, and yet also his nearness. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis, he has some great words of how to make sense of these seemingly opposed things. He says, though Yahweh does not show himself in a totally transparent way, he has made his will clear in the tablets of stone. The cloud points to Yahweh's obscurity, the ark, to his clarity. The former, the cloud, suggests that we cannot know him exhaustively, though the latter testifies that we can know him adequately. He satisfies your need for clarity, but not your passion for curiosity, mystery, and clarity. So we have this tension of obscurity and clarity, and in that tension we have the glory of God. So high and lofty and above all, and yet so near that he lives down the street. The extreme power and command of angel armies, and yet inviting of man to draw near. The holiness and faithfulness, and yet the nearness and commitment to sinful man. Who is like this God? What other God could hold such extremes in tension? This is the glory of our God. Man has merely responded by building a house, and the house is their utmost and their best to make much of this God. And though it is so simple and cannot compare to this infinite God, God still condescends to the simple man, and he delights to fill the space to the brim with his glory. So after the cloud fills the space, Solomon gives a blessing to the Lord, and then he gives a long prayer of dedication. And I know you've eagerly been waiting for me to read aloud another 50 verses aloud to you today, but (laughs) instead I'm just going to read the introduction and give some summaries of the prayer. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Let's look at verse 22. Get some water. 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you have declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father." But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. In this introduction, he affirms a number of things about God. There is no one like him in heaven above and in earth beneath. He keeps the covenant, he shows steadfast love to his servants. He has guaranteed to David that there will always be a son of David sitting on the throne of Israel. But it comes on one condition. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before him as David did. Solomon regards the great grace that God has bestowed upon these people. They do not deserve the God of the universe to dwell in their midst. Even the highest heaven cannot contain him. Who are these sinful people to have the house of God in their midst? That God would bend an ear to them and and hear their plea. So Solomon begins his prayer. You have placed your name here that your people may pray toward you. And you will hear from your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. God's presence in the temple is conditional upon their obedience. And Solomon instantly has in his mind the likelihood that Israel could live up to their end of the bargain. And he is then drawn straight to the curses that are spelled out in Leviticus for those who break the covenant of the Lord. Of the seven sections of this prayer, five are built on the sins that Israel might commit and the pleas for forgiveness when they do. His prayer covers a range of pleas for forgiveness. When a man sins against a neighbor, when the people rebel against God and he allows an enemy to triumph in battle, when God withholds rain on their crops due to their sin, if there's famine or sickness or plague. And then if you were in ABF last week, we talked about Daniel's prayers and how they echoed this prayer. For when the nation gets carted off into exile. May this location be the place of promise. And when your people pray, would you forgive and bring them back to the place of promise? When we see these prayers back to back like this, it can seem like a really bleak thing. Like, come on, Solomon. Couldn't you hype up the crowd a little bit? Couldn't you pump them up with some encouragement today and say, I really believe in you guys. I really think you can do it this time. Look, we got the temple. Look, look how beautiful it is. We finally arrived. There's no way we're going to lose it. But Solomon recognizes the severity of God. He sees the great responsibility that falls on them by having God dwelling among them. The great privilege and also the sharp precipice that they walk on and how prone they are to falling off the edge but don't lose heart. This whole endeavor started with the burning bush, started with the plagues and the Red Sea. All of this began not with a hoping or wondering if God would be merciful, but with a great display of his mercy. They have not fooled God into dwelling among them. This is his idea. He has filled the temple so that they would know he is merciful. Even the punishments and curses for breaking the covenant will be used as a tool to drive Israel to repentance and throw themselves upon his mercy. They will know that God does not treat them according to what they deserve, but his faithfulness and love will cover their lack of obedience. I think this is exactly why having a temple is such a momentous occasion for Israel. Remember, God began with the travel-sized temple. It was made with inferior materials. It had to traverse the desert. It had to be put up and torn down over and over again. How was it ever going to last? But now look where they are. Look how God has established them. Look at the wealth he has given them. Look at the security. And now the dwelling place of God in such grandeur and glory God truly is putting away the temporary in favor of what lasts. He really is true to his word. So this building stands in their midst that all would know that their God is a merciful God. It stands as a reminder that he will be faithful when they cannot be faithful. And as they turn their eyes to the location of the temple, may they remember his promises and the privileges, the privilege that it is to be the people of God. May they turn from their sinful ways and seek his forgiveness. And may they delight in traveling to the house of the Lord and basking in his glory. And for us, as we look back on this, this is our history. This is our heritage. This is our faith may we be reminded of God's faithfulness and his mercy. And we know this even more fully as our covenant through Christ is built on greater promises, a much greater glory, exponential degrees greater. May we all remember the great privilege it is to have this God in our midst. Let us run to him when we sin and throw ourselves upon his abundant mercy. And I'd like to zero in on one final part of Solomon's prayer. Let's look at 41 through 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, And when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people, Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. They shall hear of his name. They will travel from a far land for his name. May they know his name, may they fear his name, and know that this house is called by his name. One of the main purposes of God dwelling in the midst of his people isn't even for his people. It's for those yet to be his people. And this is arguably Israel's greatest failure and their greatest breaking of the covenant. Because from the beginning, they were to be set apart so that they would be a blessing to the whole world that they would grow and fill the earth, that they would bring the nations under submission to their God. This isn't secondary. This is in the very DNA of what it means to be God's people, that the foreigner, that the nations would know his name and serve him. So when Solomon prays this prayer, he sets apart the temple as a mission's headquarters. May this house not merely be for Israel, may it be for those near and those far away. For the foreigner as much as for the Israelite. May his name be known and obeyed. And time begins ticking at this point until Israel is exiled for breaking the covenant for their lack of repentance. And in the end, the bad kings, they they sought to make a name for themselves... They sought to do what was right in their own eyes and they forgot that it was about the name of God. Instead of being a beacon to the nations about God's presence, they profaned the mercy of God and they took it for granted. They did not fear the Lord, nor did they care that all peoples and nations would come to know his name. There's more with this biblical theology of God's presence that we've been doing. There's more of this And some of that we will dive into next week, but I want to jump ahead in the biblical narrative with regards to the temple. This comes from 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul poses this question to the people. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know? Now, we are at a different point in redemptive history. And it's certainly a different degree of glory. But let us ask ourselves the same question. Do you not know that you are God's temple and his spirit dwells within you? God's presence with his people is not a past tense event. It is here and now in an even greater way than it was then. And it's in a temple that's not built by human hands, but one that God has made, paid for by his own blood, and filled to the brim with his spirit. And for some reason, whenever we talk about our bodies being temples, it almost always becomes about diet and exercise. And we don't often enough take it to what we're talking about today. Do you not realize that your body is a display of God's glory? Do you not realize that your body is a beacon of God's mercy? And the point that I want to make to you now, do you not realize that your body is a missions agency? That you exist for others? That God has put his name upon you to call upon those who do not yet know him? Do you not know that you are God's temple? I'll be the first one to confess this morning. I think I've forgotten this. I mean, I'm a pastor. I for sure know that I'm here for all of you. But God wants my body to be for those who haven't yet heard his name. Not my wallet only, but me in my body. And we can talk all about the growing hostility in our world for Christians and the church. And as true as that is... God has not put his name on us so that we would simply weather a cultural storm and survive. We are here to bear his glory, to proclaim his mercy, and bring the world under submission to his name. The foreigner to the gospel isn't only across the world, but across the street. Let us remember that we are God's temple. And if you feel this conviction too, let's pray together for this renewal. A renewed longing for God to use our bodies as a beacon for his name and the desperately lost world around us. And Solomon has given us the pattern here, that when we recognize how we have failed, we can call upon his name and ask him to forgive. So that we would individually be beacons to our neighbors And that when we come together, that we would be in an even greater light into this darkness. You are God's temple. His spirit dwells within you. So let us exist for those who do not yet call on his name. As the people of Israel transitioned from tabernacle to temple, it should reveal to us that though the building changed, our God did not change. His promises remained. His faithfulness continued. His steadfast love became even more present and clear. And even though his glory now filled a more glorious building, more established and more fitting of God with his people, the building was only a glimpse of his true presence and his true glory. The building should only be a marker or a beacon to the God who is served by the building. Solomon ends the dedication service by giving these words of benediction to the people. This is found in 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments, as at this day. What we have through Christ is an even more glorious dwelling place, better promises, a truly unshakable foundation. So, even more so, let us be those who incline our hearts to him, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments that all the earth would behold our God in his glory, that all would know his mercy, that all may know his name, that he is God and there is no other. And may it to be to their joy to have him as their king. Let's pray together. Father, I echo these words of Solomon. May it be to this day, as it was before, that your name would be great, that we would walk in your statutes, that we would walk in response to the great mercy with which you have revealed to us. Oh, Lord, we pray that your glory would be made known, that your mercy would be made known, that your name would be proclaimed in this church, in this neighborhood, in Des Moines, into the whole earth, Lord. That your name would be great that all would come to know you and let us be about that mission god we ask in jesus name amen